I do want to say welcome to all of our campuses and, and those watching online. We are in week two of our series, Road Tripping. And in addition to that, today is Miracle Prayer. And anyone just need God to show up in your life? What I love about God is there's nothing too big and there's nothing too small. So at the end of our services, if you need prayer for anything, uh, we'd invite you to come forward. We'd love to pray with you. I'll be up front praying for this hair of mine, uh, praying that Lord just... Please, whatever you do, uh, keep it on my head. I have this theory uh, that God only allows individuals to go bald who have a head that is shaped right for it. That's my theory, and I'm hoping that God proves me to be right. I look at like a Pastor Stephen, I'm like, well, he looks good. He has a perfectly shaped head. Uh, but I look like a Sharpe in the back, and I've got knots in places. And uh, trust me, you want to join me in prayer because the last thing you want to do is go to a church where the pastor looks like Elmer Fudd. So <laughs> church, join me in prayer. But we are in week two of our series, Road Tripping. And have you ever had a situation where you realized, I, I think I get it. The joke's on me. You ever had one of those moments, a joke is on me? I, I find that that is the case a lot in my life. And last week we kicked off this series, Road Tripping, and following service, like immediately following service, my family and I went on a road trip. And we got in our car with a camper and we started making our way over to Coryoga National Park in North Ohio. And guys, about two hours into the trip, we broke down. And so we're on the side of the road and my family and I, we had to take a hike to this small rural town that had this, this gas station with like a, a little bit of a Dairy Queen inside it. And we were stuck there for about six hours as we were trying to figure out what was wrong with the vehicle and trying to line up a mobile mechanic to come out and replace our alternator. It was, it was a nightmare, right? In fact, as we were walking, this is how rural it was. As we were walking, an Amish buggy just cruised by us. And apparently they don't, they don't pick up hitchhikers. And so we were, we were out there. This is actually one picture of us playing some cards. And as you can tell, uh, we're, we're getting through. But what was funny is there's this little motel next to um, the gas station that we're at. And we're like, all right, it looks like we're gonna have to stay the night until we can get this fixed in the morning. And come to find out the motel had bed bugs. So they weren't taking anyone overnight. And so I had to find us a ride. Hey, we got to get to a town that has a, a, a hotel for us. And so I pull out my Uber app. Well, come to find out they don't use Uber where we were at. <laughs> so I meet this guy named Jerry. And I'm like, Jerry, can you give me and my family a ride to the closest town? So this is us in the car with Jerry. <laughs> and as you'll notice, Jerry uh, has like a homemade cast on his hand. So we're in the car and I'm like, Jerry. What's going on with the hand? He said, well, last night I got in a fight at a demolition derby. <laughs> and he went on to explain the whole fight in front of my kids. It was one of the most unique days of my life. And I, I couldn't help but think God is in heaven with the patriarchs and the matriarchs of our faith. And they're just dying laughing. I think God got Moses and Abraham and Peter and some of the guys he used to mess with when they were on earth. And he's like, guys, check this out. This guy just kicked off a series called Road Tripping. I'm gonna kill his alternator and see how he does with this one. <laughs> joke, uh, joke being on me. But the whole idea of this series is every single one of us is on a journey. 
We're all on a spiritual journey. Even those of you who have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are on a journey. And this road that you're on, no matter how much it zigs and zags, no matter how fractured or broken it may seem, ultimately every road that we travel is going to lead us to meeting our maker. And what you do with Jesus Christ determines how that that moment plays out in your life. It's a big deal, but we are all on a journey. And I think one of the most fulfilling things in life is just discovering all that Jesus died to offer us. Jesus came and he, he laid down his life. Also, you and I can discover true life. He stepped into our shoes, so we might take the invitation to step into his shoes. It's amazing. And, and I say often, and I really want you to grab a hold of it in this series, Jesus just didn't come offering advice. He came promising an adventure. Guys, I promise you, when you follow Christ and you put one foot in front of the other, what you discover is this Jesus of ours. He leads us in a path that exceeds our expectations. He does things in our life that we don't even know to pray for. And suddenly there's a fulfillment and there's a joy. And we discover, wait a second, I'm not just some random person by chance living on some speck of dust in a galaxy. But I was born on purpose and for a purpose. And God has a design for my life. I get to experience that. Anyone excited about that? Anyone just thankful for God's invitation on this adventure? And part of the adventure is partnering with God in his redemptive plan in humanity. We get to be the next generation that gets to advance the cause of Christ. And every single one of us is here today because other individuals, heroes of our faith, throughout centuries on end, well, they did remarkable things for Christ. And they advanced the local church on every continent around the world. People laid down their lives and people made significant sacrifices and people were bold in their witness and sharing the love of Jesus with others. And you and I sit here today as a byproduct of their faithfulness. My challenge as a church is what would happen if we would do for others what others did for us. And we would rise to the occasion to advance the cause of Christ in a world that desperately, desperately needs this Jesus. I believe a church that avoids the world ultimately avoids its purpose. You know, early on in scripture, not early on, but early on in the life of the church, Jesus is about to initiate this movement called the church. And he gets his disciples together and specifically he's talking to Peter and he says, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Who's going to build the church? Jesus is going to build the church. Guys, that's a great promise to you and I that takes the pressure off. You and I aren't fully responsible for building the church. Ultimately, he's gonna do it and you and I get to be a part of it. He says, I will build my church. Scripture also says that if he be lifted up, all men and all women from all walks of life will draw near. It's amazing. And he says, I will build my church. And then he follows it up with this statement. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. He doesn't say the gates of heaven will not fail. He says the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, what's the purpose of a gate? To keep things out. And he's saying, hey, this local church of mine, what I'm going to 
set into motion is going to be such a great movement that is going to have such a radical impact on humanity. Hell itself will not be able to keep it out from the world that we're in. Anyone just love that idea? I think as Christians, we, we've got to stop being so timid. And we've got to stop being so insecure and we've got to stop being so delicate in our faith, but we have to rise to the occasion. Wait a second. Our God is good. Our God is powerful and he is mighty and he is brilliant and he is creative. And for whatever reason, he has selected us for such a time as this to play a part in his local church. So let's rise to the occasion. And I'm convinced, church, that a broken world needs a brave church. Ever looked at the brokenness of our world and felt overwhelmed? It's in moments like that that you and I need to begin praying, God, would you give us the courage? I believe a broken world, well, it needs a brave church. In addition to that church, I would say I would rather be an overly courageous church than an overly cautious church. I, I wanna live in such a way that gets the attention of heaven. I wanna live in such a way that invites more and more of God's favor upon our activities. And I wanna live in such a way that the world around us, though they have disdain for what we believe, they start to grow in curiosity. Wait a second, what is it about this Jesus that has these individuals so devoted to his cause? And what is it about this Jesus that has had such a tremendous impact in their life? Our church has a pretty remarkable heritage. For over four decades, God has blessed our church in incredible ways. Yet I'm convinced there is still far more for us to gain than there is for us to lose. I believe God has Northview positioned to play a key part in what he has next, not only for our community and not only for our state, but I believe God is going to use our church in profound ways within our nation but a broken world, it needs a brave church. And it needs individuals who are committed to this adventure. Church, I, I pray you go on a journey with Christ. What I love is all throughout scripture, Jesus would take journeys himself. And along the way, Jesus would find others who are on a journey. And have you ever had one of those moments where you bump into someone unexpectedly, like you were not planning to see them. Have you ever had one of those moments? This happens in our household often. There are days that Krista and I and the kids, we can wake up and everyone can get ready. Outfits match, hair is done, teeth is brushed. Our team looks good and we can go out in town and not run into a single person. We're ready to meet people, but we don't see anybody. And then there are those days where we just, well, we look busted. And we have the idea, hey, we're just gonna try to sneak over to the grocery store. Bedhead, right, some morning breath. Some folks are still in their pajamas. Some of the kids still have breakfast on their face. And we show up thinking we're just gonna sneak in. And just so happens, we run into the entire congregation of Northview. It's like, I was not expecting to bump into you in this moment. Well, someone bumps into Jesus and there's no doubt when this individual bumps into Jesus, he was not expecting to encounter him. What you find in scripture is we are introduced in the book of Acts to a man by the name of Saul, who becomes known as the apostle Paul, this hero of the faith. 
This individual who contributes a great deal to scripture. He's brilliant and he's sophisticated. He's educated and he's, uh, he's talented and he's disciplined and he's passionate and he's devoted. And much of our faith has been supplemented by his writings. And that's who we know the Apostle Paul to be. But that is not who we meet the Apostle Paul as when we first encounter him. See, in scripture, what you find is you know, the church takes off and immediately there's a resistance. Church, from day one, there has been a resistance to our faith. Yet the church still stands to this day and the church continues to thrive around the world. And what you find is the religious institution of the day. Well, they thought this, this community of followers of Christ that were following Jesus was a cult. They thought Jesus was a, a con artist. And so the religious institution, along with the Roman authorities, well, they partnered together because common enemies make strange friends. Have you ever found that to be the case? And they partnered together to stomp out this community of followers of Christ. And so what you find is there comes this point, Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, where an individual by the name of Stephen, one of the early disciples, one of the early leaders within the church, well, he gets drug out and eventually he gets stoned to death. And there comes this moment where all these individuals get around him and they prepare to stone him. And there's this weird practice of the day where individuals would literally take off their outer garments also that they had more mobility in the arm. Because if you're gonna take someone's life with a rock, you better throw it as hard as you can. And so they would take off their outer garments and they would lay their garments at the feet of the authority figure on sight. And so here these men take off their, their outer garments and they pick up their rocks to kill Stephen and they lay their garments at the feet of a man by the name of Saul. From day one, we are introduced to the Apostle Paul as not an advocate for the faith, but an adversary to the faith. We are introduced to Paul giving the permission and the approval and endorsing the murder of Stephen. And so after this, what happens is, is the community of faith, they kind of scatter to other towns and communities due to the persecution. And look what it says in Acts chapter nine, verse one, it says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found anyone belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. Now, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I love that question. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. Other passages of scripture, other translations say, rise and enter. Rise and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So right off the bat, we find Paul 
is heading in the wrong direction with the wrong motives, endorsed by the wrong people, set out to do wrong. I mean, everything about this journey of his was wrong. Yet somehow, in some way, in a way that is hard to get our minds around, with all the wrong he was doing, somehow Jesus still got it right. You know, I'm amazed by God's ability to do that, his ability to weave his redemptive plan in and through your life that even when you get it wrong, somehow he repurposes the errors in our life and he even redeems the pain in our life and somehow when we get it wrong, he still manages to get it right. But in this moment, Jesus, well, he kind of wrecks his plans. You ever had God wreck your plans? Like you thought, hey, I have an idea of what I want the future to look like. I have an idea of how I want the situation to play out. And then you find that situations occur and your plans are wrecked. But down the road, you begin to realize it was the hand of God that wrecked your plans. I would say it this way. God will sometimes ruin your day to save your life. I mean, he will wreck your plans when he knows your plans will wreck your life. And so in this moment, God ruins Saul's day. Yet simultaneously, he saves Paul's life. And I'm just telling you, sometimes the inconvenience that we go through and the hardships that we face down the road, we discover it was a tender mercy. And God may have ruined my day, but simultaneously he saved my life. I love this about our God's redemptive nature. See, what happens is, is Paul was, well, he was an established figure of the day. Individuals looked up to him. He was highly trained and he was elite in his stature. This was an individual who, when it came to the religious institution, there wasn't much higher than Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul was pent up on religious steam. And some of you, you're pent up on religious steam. And maybe you could identify with some of the thoughts and the feelings that Paul would have. Others of you, Maybe you have disdain towards the community of faith. Or maybe you just think this whole Jesus community is just bogus. Well, you too would have a lot in common with this Apostle Paul. But what you find is the Apostle Paul, he got to the top of the ladder of the religious world, all to discover he was leaning against the wrong wall. And sometimes this happens in our life. And what you find is Jesus knocks him off his high horse. One of the best things God can do for us at times is to knock us off our high horse when we too swell up in self-righteousness. I say it often, and I'll probably repeat it for years to come. As followers of Christ, grace does not give us license to look down on others. It gives us the opportunity to look out for others. Hey, the same God who rescued me, this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, well, can work in your life in similar fashion. And so he knocks him off of his high horse. But church, here's what you have to understand. And tuck this away when you're maybe perplexed or trying to discern God's activity in your life. Our God will humble you 
but he will not humiliate you. It's a pretty significant difference between the two. He will humble you. And at times, every single one of us needs to be humbled. Every single one of us needs to be reminded he's God and we're not. But he won't humiliate you. He seeks to do something special in our lives, not to make a spectacle of our lives. Amen. And so what you find is he knocks him off his high horse. But there's that command that follows. And he says this to to Paul. He says, hey, rise and enter. Yeah, you've been humbled, but my goal isn't to keep you down. My goal is to raise you up. And now that you understand who I am, because what's the question that Paul asked? He says, Lord, who are you? See, in this moment, he's having an encounter with God. And he knows, hey, I know who I'm talking to, but I don't know who I'm talking to. Lord, who are you? There's something happening in Paul's life where he recognizes the person I'm encountering is none other than God himself. But he doesn't fully realize in the moment God himself is Jesus Christ. And so he says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Rise and enter. This idea of, hey, would you now step into this life of faith? And would you now enter the life I've actually designed for your life? Would you rise and enter? And church, I'm convinced every exit is an entrance. Every exit is an entrance. The moment you step out of something, essentially you are stepping into something else. And so in this moment, Jesus extends the invitation. Hey, would you exit the former life that you've known? And would you enter the future life I came to offer? Would you rise and would you enter? I mean, this is pretty amazing because it says that Paul is coming with murderous threats in his heart. He's coming off of the stoning of Stephen and here he meets Jesus face to face. And if we were to pause the the, the scripture and we were to say, Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, fill in the blank, what happens next? Most of us would not assume Jesus to be so gentle and graceful. Aren't you glad the person next to you isn't God? I mean, you should be glad I'm not God because in this moment, if I'm Jesus, chances are this guy catches a lightning bolt to the chest. You just took out Stephen. I'm gonna take you out. But our God is not bent on retaliation. He's bent on reconciliation. It is a trademark of our community. And so he offers just insane grace to Saul. Guys, I think when it comes to grace, some people have a really poor understanding of God's grace. It amazes me how many people think it's a cheap grace and how many people think it's a weak grace. And here's the deal. Any grace that costs an innocent man his life, it's not cheap and it's not weak. I think it's recognizing that this grace that is abundant and abounding in our life It just isn't there to enable us to continue living recklessly. No, I would say it this way. Sin is passing over God's law, right? But grace is God passing over our sin. So what you find is in this moment, God just, he passes over his sin with grace. 
So some people will, will think, hey, well, maybe that's license. And they'll misinterpret his activity. But what I love about this is how quickly Jesus extends grace to Paul. It's amazing to me. And church, one handle that I think we have to, to hold on to as followers of Christ, one thing that we have to always remind ourselves of as a body of believers, and that is this, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Come on, church, can I get an amen? Every saint has a past. Some of you looking cute and all righteous, you have a past. Don't forget who you were and what you were like before you met Christ. Because here's the thing, the moment you forget your past, you'll lose confidence in a sinner's future. Do not forget all that God has done in your life. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Jesus says, hey, rise and enter. There's still a great future in store for you. And I think when we lose awareness of our past, well, we lose courage and confidence in someone else's future. It's just saying, hey, this is what God is able to do in a person's life who fully surrenders it all to Jesus. Another way of saying it, church, is the church not only exists for the exhibition of saints, but also for the education of sinners, right? The church exists to, to place before the world what godliness and righteousness and holiness looks like in a fallen world. That the church is proof that you can live a righteous life in a wicked world. You can live a godly life in a faulty world. That the church is an exhibition of saints. Look at the character of these individuals. Look at their integrity, look at their, their gratitude, look at the, the purity of heart, look at their motives, look at the activity of these people. It is the exhibition of saints and simultaneously the education of sinners. To separate the two is, is faulty. And some churches do this. There's a discipleship camp and there's the evangelism camp. And to separate the two is a faulty way of thinking. The church exists for the exhibition of saints and the education of sinners. And without the latter, you don't get the former. Which means some of you who've been in church for a while, it's time to lead. And some of you who are new to the church, it's time to learn. It's time to allow other people to speak into your life and to inform you of the goodness of our God and how to facilitate this faith. But I think there are three things that are they're hard for us to say at times. And the first one, it's hard to say, I was wrong. I mean, Paul was so convinced he was right. And have you ever been so convinced you were right all to have God humble you and be like, you're wrong. I'm telling you, one of the best prayers you can pray, one of the prayers I, I pray almost every single week of my life is, God, is there any opinion or any perspective that I have wrong? God, is there any argument that I have with you that I don't meet eye to eye that I need to accept your perspective over my own? Admitting you're wrong is hard and it comes with the faith. Every single one of us is gonna get things wrong at times, but to acknowledge it and to receive grace is key. In addition to that, it's also hard to say, I need help. 
You can't do it alone. And the beauty of the community of faith is we get to help shoulder God's call for every single one of our lives. And we get to move each other forward as a unit. And the third thing that I find really hard to say is this word here. Come on, on the count of three, say this word to your neighbor. Peculiar, yep, it's a tough word to say. Sometimes you gotta throw something in there that's lighthearted for the non-Christian to be like, oh, I get that one, right? <laughs> Church, would you, would you rise and enter? Would you step into the life Jesus died to give you? So then it picks up and it goes on to say this. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, which for the record, this is my favorite character in the entire Bible. Individuals ask me like, hey, if you were anyone in scripture, who would it be? And I feel like I always let people down because I'm like none of the heroes. I'm not a David, I'm not a Moses, I'm not an Elijah, I'm not a Peter, I'm certainly nothing like a Jesus. If anything, I'm an Ananias. I'm the guy who gets like four verses. But God comes to Ananias and he gives him a vision into Paul's potential. And I don't think I'm really gifted, but the one thing I feel like I've been graced to, to do is to see God given potential in other people and to just call that out. This is my favorite character in all the Bible. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is my chosen instrument, uh, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. This is amazing. So it says, after laying hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I'm so inspired by this Ananias guy. God comes to him in a, a vision and he says, Ananias, and Ananias says, here I am, Lord, which echoes back to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Individuals who would hear a call from God and they would say, hey, here I am. It's a statement that says, Lord, I stand ready for you to use me how you see fit. And what would happen if, if we developed a similar posture? Lord, I stand ready. I stand ready for you to use me however you see fit. He says, Lord, here I am. And he says, go to, go to this house and, and tell this Saul individual that he is my chosen instrument. And it says, Ananias got up and went. I mean, the turnaround time in his obedience is unbelievable, which I believe that is how you best measure someone's spiritual maturity. It's the lag time between God's prompting and your obedience. If you want an indicator of, of how spiritually mature you are or someone else's, just pay attention to the lag time. 
What is the gap between God's prompting and your obedience? He says, go to the house and, and he just rises to the occasion. And it's amazing to me because God even gives them the address. It's on a street called Straight and the home belongs to a guy named Judas, which clearly God doesn't have triggers like the rest of us. Because after what Jesus went through, I don't think I would be partnering with anyone by the name of Judas for a few years, right? No, that cat burned me. I gotta find somebody else. Doesn't have triggers. And he says, go to this guy's house. It's on Straight Street. Which if you do a deep dive and you study it for yourself, you can find that Straight Street in Damascus, it still exists to this day. And some argue that it is the oldest road still in existence to this day. Straight Street in Damascus. And my next thing for some of you, hey, it's rise and enter. And the second thing I would say to you is stay on Straight Street. That there is a, a path that God wants every single one of us to, to live on that reflects his character. And there are certain commands and instructions that God has placed before us. Also, we can get the most out of this life. And tragically, so many people misinterpret or, or just cast judgment on the instructions of God. And church, listen, God's boundaries for your life are God's blessings for your life. I promise you, you get down the road and you discover God's not trying to rob me of joy. God is trying to empower me to live a life of freedom. And he's given me the handles to get the most out of this life. You see, this is the thing about grace. Grace doesn't make sinning possible. Grace makes righteousness possible. Like you don't need grace to sin. You did that already on your own. But we do need a work of God in our life to trigger this righteousness and this holiness and this character of God in us. Amen. That's what I love about the story of creation. Adam and Eve, two human beings, were thriving in perfection. Before the fall of man, before you know, sin enters the world, Adam and Eve, two humans, were thriving in a perfect world. Which means humanity is wired with such a high capacity for goodness, yet most people live lives unaware or never discovering it. You have a capacity for goodness. You have the ability within you to accomplish really remarkable things. And grace is what empowers and makes it possible for you and I to live out a righteous life. So he says, Ananias, go and Tell him he's my chosen instrument, which is insane to me because scripture told us how long Saul had been there blind at Judas's house. How many days was it? Three days, 72 hours. This man shows up on the scene coming from one murder, about to attempt another, has an encounter with Jesus. And in 72 hours, God's like, go tell him he's my chosen instrument. I mean, the turnaround time of grace is jarring. I mean, that, this makes us uncomfortable. If you give your life to Christ around most church, church, uh, church folks, they wanna say, hey, let's take the next couple years. We're gonna evaluate your progress over the next three years to tell whether or not it's legit. 
Have you ever run into that? We think God, you know, delineates his grace. We think he parcels it out over time as we earn it. That's not true. You don't get 10% of his grace on day one and then earn 20% of it in your second month and then another 30% of it in your second year. That's not how grace works. No, day one, our God dumps a truckload of grace on you. And then you wake up day two and he dumps a truckload of grace on you. And then you wake up day three and he dumps a truckload of grace on you. And then day four and day five and the story of your life is grace is abundant and grace is abounding. And no matter how bad I am and no matter what I've done, His grace covers it all because it is sufficient. The turnaround is remarkable. Again, church, we have to be so careful we don't pass on to others a message that is not consistent with the gospel. Our God is not holding on or holding out on his grace. So please stop holding on to your shame. He just dumps grace upon grace. And some of you, my challenge is stay on straight street. Yeah, life is challenging. And yeah, there comes some resistance to our faith. But the reward of following Christ, it's worth it. You get down the road and you think, that was awesome. Recently, I was in Colorado with my boys last summer, actually. And there's this little shop that rented out these, these e-bikes, like a little moped. And so I rented this e-bike, and here's a picture of me and my boys. I'm such a Hallmark dad, we all had to get matching sweaters, you know, <laughs> all up in my feels. So me and my boys were, were whipping around town. This bike would go 35 miles an hour. At one point, we're coming down this hill, we got up to 40. Just whipping around town, it was amazing. And we come around this corner, and there's a skate park, and there's all these kids out there skating. All these skaters, and some of them are smoking, which smelt like herbs. And um, (laughs) one of my sons goes, Dad, look at those kids. They're awesome, which triggered some pride in me. I was like, please, my kids are awesome, right? So in the moment, I just had to sell out to it. So I drive over to the skate park, and I'm like, hey, everybody off. Take your AirPods out. Get the weed off the skate park. Me and my boys are gonna take a turn at it. So we clear the skate park. And me and my boys start whipping around on this e-bike in this half pipe. The first time we wiped out. And then we filmed the second time. And this is us on this, on this skate park in Colorado. It's amazing. We get done and everyone's like, hey, we gotta get back to skating. I'm like, not yet. I need a photo shoot. And so I'm trying to take pictures of my boys. And <laughs> boys are dying laughing. And it was awesome. And that thought, Dad, look at those kids. Those kids are awesome. And my response being, please, my kids are awesome. I think a very similar dialogue happens with God. He senses our our admiration for the world around us. He senses our envy for things that we see in culture. And he senses the thoughts within our mind where we look at those around us outside the community of faith and we think, man, those people are awesome. And our heavenly father's like, please, my kids are awesome. Those who have been grafted into this family, are you aware of the family you're a part of? Throughout history, guys, do your own homework. 
Do your own research. There is no community of people, no organization throughout human history that can even rival what the local church has accomplished for 2,000 years on every continent around the world. It is unparalleled. How the church advanced science, how the church advanced the medical world, how the church advanced education, how the church advanced civil rights, what the church has done for the rights of individuals through all walks of life. You cannot argue, nor can you compete with what the local church and the children of God have accomplished in the world. Please, God says, my kids are awesome. So stay on straight street. Get the towel out of your hand and stop waffling in your faith and rise to the occasion. God has great things in store for us who call upon his name. So then it ends like this. And it says, now several days, he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus. Have you ever found that to be the case? The moment you encounter him, you just can't shut up about him. He's so good. And some of you, you're, you're too shy in your faith. Tell somebody what God has done in your life. He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? They start to, wait a second, let's check this guy's resume. Is this not the one who destroyed those in Jerusalem? Which what I love about our God is he doesn't consult our past to determine our future. <laughs> Church, our God does not consult our past to determine our future. He says you are righteous and you are holy and you are forgiven and you are loved and you are cherished and you are adopted into this family. Is this not the one? And God's like, yeah, that's the one. I love that one. He, and he had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, come on, by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. That every single day he stepped out there and he offered proof. Wait a second, guys. There are some things I had wrong. And some of this, this is going to be your story. You're going to walk away and think, man, there's some things I had wrong. This Jesus is legit. And the way you're going to prove it to others is the proof of your life. Hey, try this out for size. The next time somebody projects skepticism onto your faith, say, hey, respectfully, your opinion doesn't trump my experience. Just try that out the next time. Hey, your opinion, it doesn't trump my experience. I know who I was and I know who I am in Christ. I may not be where I wanna be, but by the grace of God, I'm not where I could be or where I should be. I'm living proof that this God is amazing. And it's just living in a way that proves and entices the curiosity of others. Wait a second, this God, well, if he can save someone like that, maybe he could save someone like me. And so it goes on to say, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also closely watching the gates day and night so that they may put him to death. Religious folks go crazy. But his disciples took him at night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And church, my final encouragement to you is would you 
leaving the basket. I mean, Paul is the ultimate basket case. <laughs> How does Paul show up? On his own two feet. Walks through the city gates. But how does he leave? In a basket. I mean, he leaves very differently than the way he came. And that's the beauty of church. Whether you're new to the faith or whether you're seasoned Christian, the challenge for every single one of us is to show up and to lean into our relationship with God where week after week we leave different than the way we came. Because again, church, for the world that we're living in, the greatest form of evidence is a changed life. So just live open to God changing your life. Come on, don't develop an unhealthy loyalty to a former version of yourself. No, you stand ready for God to do something new in your life. You stand willing and able to accept his correction and advice into your life. And you discover the new, the new life he wants every single one of us to experience. I always tell people, hey, there's, there's a new life in Christ that will blow you away. And sometimes people push back, well, how, is, how does an individual actually experience new life? Here's how I would say it. First off, you discover a new demeanor. I'm just telling you, the moment the weight of all that shame is off your life, you walk differently. You walk with your head held high. Suddenly there's a dignity and a, a sense of identity in your life. There's a new demeanor. In addition to that, there are new desires. What you find is God has this way of combating the unhealthy appetites in our life. And the unhealthy and dysfunctional appetites decrease as godly appetites increase. You, you have new desires. In addition to that, you have a new devotion. Suddenly your heart, it, it gravitates, your mind, it gravitates, your life, it, it gravitates towards something greater, something bigger. Your priorities begin to change. The number one in your life is concrete and there's a devotion that begins to develop. In addition to that, you start to make new decisions. You just do things differently. Which in this moment, you can't help but think, Paul, you just showed up and everyone in the city was afraid of you. You still have authority. You still have status. Why don't you just go outside and flex on them? Like some of you, that's what you would do. You'd go out there and remind everybody, hey, don't forget who I am. Which in this moment, there's such a shift in Paul. You know, the way I used to do things just isn't gonna cut it anymore. Moving forward, I'm doing things differently. I'm gonna leave in the basket. I always tell my boys, listen, you're gonna hear this statement in life where people will say, hey, nice guys finish last. It's bogus. Nice guys don't finish last. They're just running a different race. Just make different decisions. Treat people well and be courteous and considerate and be gentle and reflect God. You make new decisions. In addition to that, your life moves in a new direction. In addition to that, you find it comes with a new delight. There's a joy, there's a fulfillment, there's a satisfaction. And lastly, your life comes with new dreams. So God starts to captivate your mind 
captivate your heart, captivate your soul for a life beyond your comprehension. You start to realize, oh my goodness, his plan for my life is so much bigger than my own. His dream and what he has in mind, it supersedes anything I could imagine by myself. This dream that he has of mine is something I wanna experience. And I don't wanna dream with my eyes closed. I wanna dream with my eyes open. I wanna see it come to pass. And ultimately it leads you into a new destiny. Church, I'm telling you, wake up every single day and say, you know what, moving forward, I'm gonna approach every day, every situation, every circumstance with the question, in this moment, how can I honor God? If your number one goal in life is to honor God, you're gonna be all right. Get in a fight with your spouse in this moment. How can I honor God? Find yourself confused as the parent your children? In this moment, how do I honor God? When you sit down to balance your checkbook, in this moment, how can I honor God? You have one of those strange interactions with a coworker or boss at work. How do I honor God? You start to endure some suffering. How do I honor God? And I'm telling you, if you focus on honoring God every single day, you'll be a great spouse, a great parent, a great coworker, a great business owner. You'll be a great neighbor to those who don't believe in what you believe. And you will live the life Jesus died to give us. Amen.